The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Um, nice to be back here. I was um, yesterday. I went to the Great Stupa of Bendigo, so I've been teaching here and there. I don't know how I was teaching yesterday. I did. I just did some chanting yesterday, but the. We had the last Vesak ceremony pretty much yesterday. It was the this was my third Vesak this year. So we monks we tend to go from Vesak to Vesak. I, I'm sure many of you probably came to Nupri. We have that sort of two Vesaks. Ajahn Brahm was the second. Beautiful, beautiful ceremony. It's very uplifting when you see Ajahn Brahm for after a while. And it was a beautiful day. And it was a uh, in many ways, it was very uplifting. A lot of people told that it's it was such a nice, beautiful reminder when somebody like Ajahn Brahm comes to the monastery and teaches the people. You, you, you just just the way he gives speeches, he's always very inspiring. So, and then a few days later, I got message from somebody saying that I was so uplifted on that day. Now. lasted like two days. <laughs> I think that's what happens. Very normal, isn't it? You go on, you you get inspired on something, and it, the effect lasts lasts for a few days. And I'm 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 not any different from that. Um, the same thing. Like it's uh, very beautiful to stay with Adam Brahm. He was in the monastery for a few days, and it almost feels like a. Uh, well, it's very inspiring. I was going to say it's almost like a holiday somewhere, beautiful place, but it's it's different. No, it's it's very different when you see uh, somebody you you respect a lot and somebody you um, look up to, and you there's just this uh, feeling of easeness when you're with with Ajahn Brahm, for example. And I'm and I always remember Ajahn has been my teacher since early days, early on, on my starting to meditate and all that. But even then, I sometimes I remember my first teachers when I started to meditate, they always they always rem, remind me of uh, having a gratitude. There's something to that. And I hope um, maybe I can, somebody will someday come to me and say, you were my first teacher. So far, it hasn't happened, but <laughs> maybe some point. <laughs> But anyways, I, I don't mind coming to be here. Paul was kind enough to drive me. It's a bit of a hike coming from Newbury here, but I mean, it's, it uplifts my mind and hopefully uplifts you for next two days or today until afternoon. I don't know, two o'clock tonight. Today you feel depressed. So I, <clears throat> I wasn't didn't really know what I'm going to start talking about today. I, I thought this morning that I would have a topic in my mind, though. Last night I went to sleep and I, because uh, I knew I was going to come here yesterday, and I was like, "Oh, tomorrow morning, mind, can you have a topic to talk about today?" This morning I woke up, I was like, "Blank, nothing." <laughs> so, so I actually, as always, I don't prepare. I, I come from the tradition of not um, uh, preparing too much for these talks, and I've asked Ajahn Brahm a couple of times, "Should I prepare for these talks?" And he said, "Ah, oh, don't worry about it. If you don't have it, you don't have it." So there's a bit of a pressure always when you start talking like this. But uh, it seems to be that the mind wants to talk about inspiration. And I, it's it's a bit of a, 
normal topic for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure you heard. If you, yeah, okay, don't look, go back to my talks. They all my talks are like this, but so just you know, just take it as it is. Um, but um, inspiration is um, is one of the things what keeps you on the path. There's um, it's a, one of the key ingredients to keep you going as a Buddhist, as a meditator. If you don't have inspiration, if you don't have something which uplifts your mind, then you get depressed. You get drift, You start drifting away. You forget the meaning of why are we practicing. And practice. Sometimes we use these words like practice and like what does it mean to practice? It's different things, perhaps, and different times. It's a uh, different day, even different part of the day means different things. But the the key thing about practice really means that. Um, to in in the Buddhist sense, if you go like that, it's the, to be on the path of having the eightfold path and really follow the path, the eightfold path. And obviously, the end result should be, or is the the if in, um, sort of fading away, getting out of this wheel of samsara. That's the end result. So we we meditate to really to end the suffering and this path should be a happy path I was um, uh, teaching in, in Finland a month ago I was did, <clears throat> I did a retreat in um, during the Easter time we did a long weekend retreat and I I had translated the, this little booklet called uh, Word of the Buddha it's a very nice book booklet and it's um, I think the first one it was it's like complex uh, they combined Buddhist teaching into this small booklet, and it was first done 1912, 13, something like that, like a really long time ago. It was uh, done by a German uh, scholastic monk, Venobunyana uh, Tiloka, and he did it. Um, he was an amazing translator. His, his biography is just amazing read, how he, he was inspired to leave from Germany. This was even before the First World War. I mean, you, there was like, where did he find the Dhamma? What, how, what got he into the path? And he, <clears throat> for him to even to end up in Sri Lanka in those days, it was a massive undertaking. Like it wasn't just no airplanes, obviously, and there's no steamships. I think weren't really. They were even still sailing some of the parts of the the voyage. And he went through many places. He actually started to. Um, tried to find the Dhamma, the Buddhist teachings. He he went to China, he went to Japan, many places, and he ended up in Sri Lanka and uh, ended up ordaining there. So he's one of the first really Western monks ordained. There were a few ones. There was an Irish monk ordained perhaps before him. He was a, uh, uh, or an, and an English monk, I think, in early days. Both of them, they were in India and then ended up in Burma, I think, and they ordained. So in those days, it was like you, you if you weren't in Southeast Asia or perhaps in China, Japan, you just you wouldn't have come across the Dhamma. But for him, like Venabunyana Tiloka, when he heard the teachings and he they started to get these trickles, they, um, I can't remember from top of my mind, uh, head now, like how where did he hear it? But there was an interest definitely into the in arts and in 
uh, in music and many many things. They 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 got the interest from the from the uh, Asia. So they were like, if you look at the arts from nineteen ten ten and twenties and all that, it was quite influenced by the uh, East from Japan and China and all those things. And also from the obviously they got the information from um, India from East India companies. Uh, to England, obviously. But anyways, going back to that, um, the inspiration that even for him, once he heard the the teachings, he he was so inspired that he he left his um, his life back in Germany and just went towards something unknown. And it's a it's a little bit same for us. Perhaps you you were born in the Buddhist family or you in a in the Buddhist culture, but then even for us, it's we when we're going towards the really towards the Nibbana, it's we're going towards a territory which is unknown for us. We we can read the read it in the books, we can speculate what it means to um, disappear slowly, slowly, but until you experience it yourself you really don't know what you're doing. We we are all stabbing in the darkness until until you get there. That's why we we need to have um strong quite a lot quite often I find that the people who become monastic, whether it's monks or nuns, we are quite brave in the sense that we are willing to leave behind the um the world in a sense that that's quite often even uh, uh i i meet monks and nuns and they're quite individualistic because there needs to be some kind of quite a strong um identity in that you can just you can practice by yourself and for all of us, whether it's monks and nuns or the for use, um, as a layperson, you need to practice by yourself, and you need to. The work has to be done by you. You get the inspiration from the good teachers, and you you they they can describe you the map of the the road you need to walk, the eightfold path. This is this is the direction you need to be walking towards. But until until you really start getting into the deep meditation, you are practically walking blind. You you have enough faith to keep going, but faith alone doesn't take you there. And that's where we differ really from other religions that we cannot just operate on faith alone. It is, um, faith gives a really, I, I like that I, in the beginning I was quite skeptical about the faith thing and all that, but it gives a lot of sweetness into the practice. So it, it's a good to have it and good to trust when, uh, when the teachings are over and over again say about you should practice loving kindness, metta, you should practice, um, giving, have a heart which is always giving, have a heart which is always willing to let go. You really practice out of faith, to, you do out, that out of faith, 
and it gives this kind of sweetness into the practice. I've uh, been in uh, uh, seeing different traditions where, especially in this kind of um, modern vipassana tradition, perhaps, or just mindfulness uh, practices where they tend to strip everything out of that and let we just meditate we just sit quietly and that's good enough it it tends not to it, there's a tendency of having a it's a bit of a, a dry grind it doesn't have that kind of sweetness element into it which we need to have in order to uh, go forward in the path in order for us to keep going keep going keep going until we die and then that will hopefully that karma of that kind of sweetness will follow you to the next lifetime and it will that's what is um the teachings tell us so we need to have an element of faith but the the key thing about this practice is like i said um somebody inspires you and two days later you for like it's out of the window there's a remnant there so there's something Oh yeah, I remember Ajahn Brahm said something. It was very inspiring. But two days later, you really don't remember that much out of that. I hope I'm not the only one. Maybe everybody else. No, it's it's not just me. It happens to all of you. It happens. It it is a, it's a tendency is there that the life takes over you. Your normal way of mode of thinking just kicks in. And you become uninspired again. If you can keep it two days, good. Half a day is probably the more normal. So after this, I I try to inspire you as best as you can. And you know, this is actually I always say that I like to give talks like this because it inspires me. It keeps me on the practice. So that's why I don't mind teaching. Obviously, there's a limit how much we can give. But once in a while, when I come here and I see you all and it really is part of the reason why I'm a monk. It keeps me on the, uh, keeps me inspired. But so what? What is that? What What are we missing there? Like what, after two days, what? Why do you go back into that old self? Why do you go back into listening that nagging voice of that third person almost? speaking in your mind and doubting for me I, my mind has a lot of doubt some people have i don't know what the mo- modus operandi is there in their mind there perhaps they have a lot of guilt some people have a lot of anger maybe some people have these there's this this basic things in your mind which is there seems to be this nagging thoughts in your head where there's like a third person talking in there why do we always follow into those things? That I don't know, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Like, I'm asking questions, but I don't have answers for this. I have the same thoughts in my mind. I can see them. And the, the, the more I meditate, it's not that I just see them more clearly, which is really um, difficult sometimes to watch at them. But the more I meditate, more I... If, I, if the practice is, for example, now we talk about meditation, that's the practice. The more I meditate, I see it more clearly. But the more I spend time by myself and being able to watch it, it, mo- it becomes a little bit less. 
the doubting mind, which is my uh, my third person talking to, like, why are you do, what are you doing there? Do any is anybody listening to you? Why you know who are you to talk to these people? All those things, uh, I can see it in the beginning quite clearly. Like when Ajahn Brahm is there, you're very inspired. The, 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 it's easy to practice for a while. You don't have to worry about so much. It's almost like this carefree honeymoon period. But then I have to sort of go back to the grind by myself. And as a monk, uh, you, we live by ourselves in the forest, in a small hut, try to spend as much as time by ourselves as possible, not get distracted. I, the, imagine if you just can't be distracted that much. You see that thing all the time. It gets pretty tiring after a while. And the only thing you can do is, the, there's a couple things you can do actually. The, you have to have enough patience to realize that this mode will slowly start fading away. If you spend enough time of meditating, of being quiet, being mindful about it, it tends to slow down. It tends to lessen. But the best thing in the day-to-day life, when we try to remind everybody, have loving kindness. And it sounds a very lofty idea, metta. It sounds this kind of like, well, I can't do it. I don't feel it. It's the most common thing people tell us. I don't feel the matter. No, you have to put the practice in. You have to put the effort in to see that little person in your mind who's uh, talking to you and giving you, you know, doubting or being angry at all the time or having whatever you have, the, the main thing there. And you need to give it a little bit of sugar. You need to give it a little bit of kindness to that person on that day-to-day. The inspiration takes you only so far. But the practice is the day-to-day practice where you keep adding kindness towards yourself. That really is the hard yards, the hard yucca, as we say in Australia. That is your work. And then it continues, obviously, when you're sitting down on the cushion. But if you don't, if you if you live your life unmindfully, you 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 sort of you buy into that little person giving you life instructions all the time, and you are in constant fight with it, go with it, and um, and then you sit down. It tends to just keep spinning that same thing. It just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, and you it never almost fade away. Um, but if you are adding it once in a while, remember that's what we call the we some, uh, sometimes we use the Pali word sati. It it is almost like a memory. You remember the teachings. Oh. Yep, I'm too much in my head. And you see that that wild galloping thoughts and thinking, overthinking all the time. Once in a while, remember, okay, no, I should be more mindful. I should just add kindness into this. So either 
have kindness towards those thoughts, really like, okay, yeah, I can see you. I can hear those thoughts. I can see myself talking to myself. I can see myself doubting. I can see myself being angry at others. You don't need to start, let's say for anger, you don't need to have loving kindness towards the person. It's, some, it's quite difficult if you're really angry at somebody. The, only, the best thing is to have loving kindness, softness, sweetness, whatever you want to call it, whatever makes the feeling less towards yourself. You see that anger, frustration, doubt in your own mind. It's not the, really the other person's fault. It's not the society's fault. It's not the, wherever happens outside. We always tend to, it's very easy to blame others. It's very easy to blame the situation we're in. But the work is really have to be done inside of your own mind. And the, really the work is the, the foundational work in the, the be in the Eightfold Path is to have the mindfulness of being kind. Really kind towards self, not hurting yourself, not hurting anybody outside, and then you don't hurt us. It is hard, sure. It's the same way people say meditation is hard. Meditation is not hard when you get there. Until then, you're stepping in darkness. Until then, you're going in faith. Until then, you're just sort of like, I'm just meditating and I just have these looping thoughts all the time and not going anywhere and it's always the same. Until the penny drops. Then it's easy to meditate. And when you're in your own Thoughts. If once, if you, if you get sucked into that movie line, when you're in the movies and you're watching it, and you are part of that emotional movie line, you get sucked into that. You're watching the what TV, or you actually go to the movies, and you are you sucked into that plot. You sort of lose yourself into it, and you feel the emotions. The, the music adds into the sadness and the love and all that. When you're sucked into that, then you, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you have a little bit of distance into that, from that movie line of your own life, it's easier. If you have, a lo- if you have complete distance, if once the, almost the movie line disappears, then the meditation is easy. And we have, that's why when you ask somebody like Ajahn Brahm, you said, do you think a lot? He can honestly say that, no, he's not thinking. For the thinking is, is it a problem or is it, you are, we all the time, we're having this speculative mind we tend to have mind which is not very kind as a default state. But if you keep at it 
every moment counts. Remember the teaching is the basic teaching is having a mind which is at ease. Mind which is content. You can always add contentment in your life. Then it's easy. And that is the happy path. We're not here to make ourselves somehow restricting ourselves than, let's say, if we take the precepts or we're meditating, we're like restricting ourselves now for half an hour sitting here and don't move. And that makes you a better person. It doesn't really. It's almost like it, it shows you what's happening there, that meditation. The precepts are there to help you so you don't have that that much doubt in your mind. You don't have to worry about too much. I, I haven't lied. I haven't abused others, all those things. It helps you. It should be as a, as a tool to, to give easiness to yourself and others. And that then that sweetness in your mind should give you the, the ease, the contentment to be on that present moment. If you don't want to be in the, in the moment, if you don't want to sit quietly somewhere, it's not that it your, it's your mind's fault. We tend to have this fault-finding mind, fault-finding mind on, of our own mind. It's interesting. It's not the mind's fault per se. You just haven't been mindful enough. You haven't done the hard yaka, being kind. That's the work. Really, that is the work we have to do. Until then, unfortunately, we are walking in darkness. We are help. We are by help by our teachers' inspiration here to there for a day and a half. But after that, it uh, it falls on to yourself. The Buddha said when he was dying, um, "Rely on yourself. Be an island to yourself." Follow this path and you will come to an end of suffering. So if the suffering doesn't get less and less, there's nothing wrong about the teachings. You just haven't applied yourself enough. If you have same suffering all the time and you've been meditating for years, it's not my fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's not the society's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your children's fault. It's not the work's fault. It's your own fault. But don't get too um, fault-finding yourself. I mean, the, the tendency is that we, if anything, we tend to be most critical of our own minds. And I can see very clearly, having spent a lot of time by myself and that, uh, sure, I don't actually 
may um, try to find fault from any, anywhere else outside. Perhaps it's easy for me being a monastery and uh, being able to spend a lot of time by myself. But uh, I can, like I said from the beginning, I can clearly see that the the biggest problem is that I I am I'm I haven't been able to relate kindly enough with my own mind. We have very technical, we have a lot of technical teachings and they have to be there. We don't explain everything in the suttas or Buddha didn't explain everything in the suttas. There's a lot of, even this week I came, uh, I just re- suddenly realized that then well, I didn't suddenly realize that. I was talking with Dachan Nisarna. We were uh, talking about something like where is the karma stored? Do we have any kind of teachings where karma is stored? And that came up, I came up, started to think about that because what follows you from life to life? Let's say it's almost like your mind sort of follows, but the mind is not like a single thing. It cannot be. There's no one single entity of mind. We don't in Buddhism we don't have a thing called soul. But something that we always say that the karma will follow you. Your karma, what you've done, your mind state, you do the effort of being having a lot of kindness that will tends to follow from uh, life to life. Where is the karma stored? Did Buddha ever thought about you know where is the karma stored? No, he didn't actually. Unfortunately, Buddha wasn't very technical like that. Other traditions put a lot of effort. Uh, I, it just reminded me yesterday because I went to the Bendigo Stupa. The Tibetans have a, they actually have a teachings about that. They almost have like this idea that, that it's almost like a vessel where the karma is stored. But in the suttas, we don't really find it anywhere where Buddha explained things like that. Buddha was quite practical, very practical about the, the, the teachings these later traditions tend to want to explain everything. What goes from life to life? Where is the karma stored? All those things. But as far as we, as a Theravada tradition, as the, what we find in the suttas, they don't, the Buddha didn't seem to ex, having to explain everything. The Buddha w- wanted to keep things practical. It has to be, the practice has to be the key thing here by wisdom alone okay and let's say it's more like a book wisdom by this kind of knowledge or rather it's a better word by knowledge alone will really doesn't take you that far you that there is a tendency of start thinking that if you understand the path from the books you read it you understand uh, the terms, you dis- speculate what it means, that it, it um, by that you get to the end of the uh, end of the path and you or you even progress in the path. Can you see that somebody would read descriptions of the Buddha's uh, the teachings this Let's whatever it is, this um, dependent origination, and and you read it like a manual, like a 
like to how to operate the microwave. In that sense, you know, like how uninspiring that would be. You read it as like a technical manual. Can would you see that somebody would that would be inspiration for you to break through from this cycle of rebirth? You would technically perhaps understand how it works. But it's missing that kind of sweetness and kindness. It, it's missing the inspiration from your practice. You won't have it as a day-to-day fallback mechanism. When this afternoon, three o'clock, you're back in your home and bam, nothing that I told you reminds you, you remember that. Nothing of the suttas come to your mind. But you have to have enough uh, enough in your mind to remember. Hang on. Now I remember now. I should be more kind towards that depressed, doubting, angry, despair mind. That, remember that, that is the practice. Everything else will follow from that. You don't have to trust me, but you have to do it yourself. And I feel I'm starting to repeat myself, so I go for the Q&A now. So that was the talk. Thank you. Another talk on inspiration. Don't say that. Yeah, my my. It seems to be my topic of the of, all the time. Anyway, thanks, mate. Uh, thank you, Adam. Very inspiring. No <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, I had a, a quick question on... Um, Maybe be closer to the microphone. Oh, open. sorry. So, yeah. uh, just yeah. the people online here. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Yeah. Um, I had a quick question on what you mentioned about the Buddha saying how, um, you know, teaching us to be an island unto yeah. ourselves. Um, I was wondering if you could help me understand how that um, also fits in with his teachings on, you know, spiritual friendship being the, the whole of the, the spiritual right, yeah. path. Yeah, yeah. Mm. If you could just... Um, expand on that that'd be great thank you yep good uh, great question and this uh, again another thing where the kalyanamita spiritual friendship good friendship uh, good friend kind friend uh, precious friend however you want to translate that it's the whole like the buddha said it's the whole practice not just half of the practice it's the whole practice it's the good friendship and in in that sense it is the it is so important, like in that sutta where the the monks having were having even these monks, three monks, living together, and then uh, Buddha went to talk to them and said, "Like you, you, how is how do you practice?" And they said, "You know, we we go to Pindapad, then we uh, meditate uh, by ourselves, and then evenings quite often we come to and talk about the Dhamma." They were inspiring each other in that sense, and in that in that went the, it's the it's interesting, like the, it's not 
half of the the spiritual path is the totality of the or whole as the i'm i'm not sure whether it's is it does it mean actually I, that's a good question i should clarify that with ajahn pramali ajahn pram does it mean that it makes the practice whole or does it just that that it did it actually mean that it's it is the totality of the practice or is the whole but it's a uh, it's almost like i sort of tend to think that it it makes the practice complete it makes it as a whole and it's uh, i i think it comes back into the inspiration that it's uh the walk the path by yourself is almost in, in you cannot think that you could keep going week after week after year after year that walking by yourself you you could you could read the books you could just you know, like look you can go sutta central read all the books are there the uh, the all the translations are there easily available the um you don't have to come here you don't have to um see anybody else you can just have a perfect place for yourself quiet place meditate and that's the practice no you get lost really easily you you don't see you can read the manuals but if you don't know how to interpret them it's uh, you get lost but it's i think it really with that um, it's the whole of the you know the practice is that really it means that it, it, it it's the inspiration of seeing others practicing having the kalyanamitas around you and it keeps you going we really need these kind of places where we just see other who others who practice and do their best in putting the effort in um I know for myself uh, coming from a very rural place um that where there's no teachings available and I I did I really struggled like I I lost the path for a while before just before I became a monk for a while there was you try to keep it going but if the inspiration is not there the like why did these three monks who are already very advanced practitioners i think i wonder if all of them were fully enlightened by that time but why did they come together and talk about discuss the dhamma because it was so inspiring for them why did buddha meditate for example why did buddha take retreats buddha didn't need to meditate anywhere to get jhanas or anything the buddha meditated because he was he said it's a pleasant abiding why did the other why did the monks talk about dhamma because it was so inspiring to talk about dhamma there is many places and suttas where uh somebody's for sick sick for example and then the other monks they go and remind them about the teachings for these monks and they get out of their sickness or they get very inspired about them and the sickness alleviates the it's not so bad anymore or they get healthy if you see even if you talk to talk to Atom Prime and you there's this day to day most of the stuff we talk about is how to run monasteries and how we should be dealing day to day problems and it's just talk but if you if you ask actually ask him 
deep meditation, I got deep meditation, for example, you can see that he there's a there's a different he looks at you differently. Like he's there's this gladness come out of it in into his mind. There is it inspires him to see that somebody else is practicing well. And it's actually this week one of the most inspiring things about this the, this uh, previous week for me was that there was an elderly man come came to monastery and I was talking with him and he described how he few times in his life he had these strange experiences and there were quite deep meditations and for me it's like wow that's amazing how he described the the nimitta for example how it started to grow on him and he didn't realize what he was and why it was important and it was just it's such a beautiful thing it's so it's a diff, difficult to explain sometimes but it's it's almost there's this weight to that kind of speech it's not just speaking out of weather or something whatever it is in life paying bills or tv programs anything johnny depp's i don't know the thing what happened to it like it's it doesn't have a lot of weight. You know how it feels like, yeah, yeah, we're just talking about, yeah, what happened to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. But it's like, is it really, it doesn't have that weight behind it. It doesn't feel like, wow, that's amazing. It's just like, yeah, we're just talking about nonsense. It's interesting, but it's nonsense. Uh, yeah. One friend of mine, one monk said one time, he was reading the newspaper in our office and in Perth, he was reading the newspapers like, oh, yeah, I know it's nonsense, but it's interesting. <laughs> but that's how it tends to be. Our lives tends to be like that. But once you get into the deep meditations, it's, it's so inspiring. It's so, there's so much weight behind that. And the only, only thing is like you, when you get there, you realize how that's what the actual important thing is. And that's why you are island to yourself, you in those then you can start relying on yourself. Okay. Yes. could we take an online question before then we'll alternate between them? Okay. All right. He's committed. <laughs> <laughs> the question to question to the the about the half of whole life and the entire whole life with respect to that uh, question he asked. Yeah, yeah. When the Buddha gives a sermon, you have to think of the to whom he's speaking and yeah. about what. Yeah. This question came when uh, uh, Ananda, Venerable Ananda, yeah. who was only a stream enterer, yeah. asked uh, his friendship with uh, Sariputra. Yeah. Remember Sariputra, who was the embodiment of, embodiment of Dhamma. Yeah. I mean, he's the ultimate yeah. of wisdom. So for he was referring to uh, Ananda that for you. Uh, association with Venerable Sadhguru is not half of it's the entire holy life, but that will lead you to entire liberation. Actually, that was the uh, really that's that's where he said, Ananda, the the good friendship is not half of holy life, it's the entire holy life. Right, it's very relevant to. I don't think it was Sariputta, but anyways, I think it was Ananda. Was uh, there were the three others? I don't think Sariputta was living with them. No, and, no, no, could no. Have been. that that. that Oh, that was that. Okay, that was good. the question. So that is why, for for them, it it is true. But I draw it applies to every situation. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, that's that's the question. 
it's a, it's a dialogue between uh, friendship between sorry put on and okay yeah sure yeah. and the question was no, I'm just joking. yeah good thank you for the clarification it was really nice thank you yeah appreciate it Ajahn, we've got three questions yep. online. First question um, here is from the US. Dear Ajahn, can you share your wisdom as to how to practice metta in daily life? How do you practice it, practice it in your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like I said, it sounds very um, lofty, ideal, loving kindness. That's, and the, we chant the metta sutta, and it says like the mother who protects with her life or only child so it's a very very in that sense we can imagine how such a strong feeling it is when you when you really practice metta and obviously metta as um when it's described in that sense that it's the brahma viharas the uh, divine aboding ab uh, is it is a very deep meditative experience <clears throat> but the day-to-day -day life, metta, it's almost better way sometimes to describe it as are you accepting yourself as you are. Adding that kind of softness as you... The way I practice it, is some, it's almost like I have a little bit of distance from my thinking mind that I just see it and I remember the teachings that the only thing I can do is have kindness towards that. It's almost like when you see a friend, you smile at it. But in this sense, it's almost like you're seeing somebody you don't really like, your mind. Quite often we we then to have the mind which we don't really like our minds. So imagine you're seeing somebody quite often and you really don't really appreciate them that much. But when you actually be kind towards them, they do want to hang out with you. Your almost enemy turns into your friend. Whatever it is that, how you find that way, where if you can just see that yourself, you catch yourself like, oh, I'm questioning my own mind, I'm questioning myself, I'm trying to push it away. Well, however that you can turn that near enemy almost into your friend. For me, it's just sort of, even that, First step is almost like you look a, a step away from, have a little bit of distance from that movie scene where you just have a little distance and I was like, yep, I can see it. That already helps. You're too much in that movie. You, If you don't have a distance to that, there's not much you can do. You just, you you are in the scene. Have a little bit of distance. That already is the... That's the first step. How to have a little distance? Sometimes I just, because I walk the same, for example, I walk the same path every day from, uh, from my hut towards the breakfast, where we have the breakfast we call the Sangha house or the Monks Vihara. I just, I'm thinking, thinking, I'm like, oh, 
yeah, what was I was supposed to be doing? Not to be thinking, thinking, thinking. I just see, feel the movements in my body while I'm walking. I don't need to be overthinking all the time. I can just walk. Do try to do one thing at a time. That's good enough. But the thing is, whatever ha- you makes you have a little bit of distance to that, bring yourself back to the body, or all these different things we teach. Once you have a little bit of distance to that mind, then you can actually, the next step is then you can actually have a little bit of uh, kindness. And then it's, it is that thing where you remember the teachings. Yeah, I should be kind. Whatever that means on that moment, it means smiling at your like, yep, it's there again. I'm doing it again. Not to worry about it. Just be kind. That is adding just a little bit of sweet water into the fire instead of stoking the fire, making it hotter and hotter. It's difficult to talk about sometimes these mind states, but if you if you if you do the practice, if you apply yourself a little bit, you start seeing that it's what's in the mind. So don't be curious about your mind. That's I think it's a good way of looking at it sometimes. I, I remember I heard it sometime that it's that actually be curious what's happening in your own mind. That is a good starting point. Quite often we we not. We don't want to have that distance into our own minds. Quite often we live, this is me, this is who I am, this is and you really don't realize, no, it's just cause and conditions, just things changing all the time. What's actually happening there? You're not Curiosity is a nice way of looking, uh, thinking about it because it, it's somehow easy, easy thing to, instead of just sometimes we say like, well, I should be actively being kind and all that. You're almost you doing things. But if cur- curiosity is a nice way of thinking about it, then it's, it's somehow easier. Yeah. I don't know if I explained it very good, but uh, anyways, the, so what's the next question? Uh, this one here is um, like so it's an assumption, but validation asking um, a question. I assume meditation allows one to dip into the underlying issues carried in the collective unconscious, uncover the underlying issues, and the mind frees itself from the bind. We have to be very careful in Buddhism that we don't start thinking about that there is some kind of underlying consciousness which we don't see, as if there's a, there's a stream of consciousness somewhere, like sometimes people say that we can dip into it, or there's a, there is almost like an individual in ourselves which, we can, which cannot change, or there's a soul. Whatever these things sometimes you hear, and I'm, I'm always very, very careful that, look, remember, there's no you there. There is no individual which is constantly the change, never changing, all the time there. This is who I am. This is wh- and I cannot change it. I my character is this. There is no 
anywhere in the suttas. The Buddha never thought a mind which you cannot access, mind which is not just like um, Freudian uh, idea of like it, which is you cannot access, and that sort of like has these ways of uh, making us behave in certain ways. It didn't. It doesn't exist. The more you look into your mind, you realize I'm just reacting into cause and conditions all the time. You perhaps not be able to see those um, the uh, the causes which create the um, conditions. You might not be able to, and it's not like we need to find them either. It's not like we. You can all you can you can see them after a deep meditation. Until then, really don't try to find that there will be. It's because of this I'm behaving this way, and I'm now trying to. Don't try to solve problems. You just get more deep into the problems. This is not what we train. We don't try to make ourselves into better people. We don't, this is not a self-help program. I'm, again, another one which I'm really against. This is not like we give you, somehow make you a better person. This will be solving your problems. As a human, you got born as a human, you will have problems. And they will, you won't become smarter by that you will be able to evade problems. It just won't happen. Don't think you're going to be a smart person. You, you're, now I became a Buddhist, I'm a meditator. Problems solved. No. Problems will always come and they will always change. And thing, what can you do? Kindness. You don't really solve your problems in that sense that it was like then you, there won't be any more problems coming but you know how to relate to them better. Change your perception. That's the only thing you can do. Was one more? Good morning, Ajahn. Good morning. Uh, thanks for your, your coming here today. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for your talk as well. On the last point, which uh, basically you were saying that uh, regarding the self thing. Self. Uh, sorry. Like a self exists or oh, something right, right, like right. Yes, there yes, is no yeah. you there, something like right, that. Right, right, yeah. Um, basically, since uh, first of before my saying uh, something, a disclaimer, because uh, it can be interpreted in a wrong way. Yeah. So it's something like, uh, in the disclaimer, some information regarding myself like... Uh, I am from a Hindu family. Mm -hmm. uh, started studying about uh, Buddhism few years back only, so don't have much knowledge on Buddhism. Uh, but as far as I have read or not read, even heard in some of the videos, basically which were relating to some uh, suttas in a way, and I haven't read much suttas. Uh, and even some of the Dhamma talks which I have heard from some other teachers, some other ajans. One of the teachers explicitly said that when the Buddha was asked the question regarding is there a self, he did not answer. When he was asked is there no self, 
He did not answer. So basically that particular question, whether there is a self or there is no self, he did not answer that question. That teaching regarding Sabbe Dhamma Anatta, the translation of Anatta as no self is slightly misleading as for some teachers. It should be better translated as not mine. So something like Sabbe Dhamma Anatta is translated as all phenomena are not mine. Buddha did not answer that question like whether there is a self or there is no self because either of them will lead someone into a thicket of views as per as what I have heard in the talks. Now that teacher as well said that if you say that there uh, just to add to his point regarding why he is saying that the Buddha didn't said that there is no self also because if you see the teachings on mindfulness of breath uh, like Satipatthana Sutta it always says that ever mindful one breathes in, ever mindful one breathes out. There is a body, one knows that. One abides independent, everything, there is a one always there. Something like five recollections, Kama is there. We are the owner of our actions. Mm -hmm. You are the owner of your actions and you will, fall, have, you will be the successor of your actions results. There is a you there, that you are the owner of your actions. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it says something like, ever mindful, one breathes in, and when you know, you are breathing in. Whatever body posture you are, mindfulness of body, one knows that one is standing, walking, sitting, lying, talking. One knows that. Mm -hmm. There is always something like, there is reference to a self like, yeah, there is somebody. Again, not like there is an existing thing, like a soul or something, but still, as far as the... T uh, Translations goes, it says that, yeah, there, there is something there. No. And moreover, there is one sutta, like, uh, <clears throat> what was the name of the sutta? Yeah, Anantapindika sutta. Like mm. the sutta which uh, I think uh, Sariputra told to, gave to Anantapindika <clears throat> on his deathbed. In that it said, uh, one abides thus, uh, there will be no consciousness of mind dependent on any of those things. Like there are multiple things like... Uh, I think five senses, five faculties, mm -hmm. uh, four noble truths. Basically, all the things it says and says that they will. Every time it says in the end, uh, I should not cling any to this anything to, related to this world, nothing related to that world in any other worlds. So there will be no consciousness of mind dependent on any of these things. So every time that particular statements were ending with that, there is no consciousness of mind dependent on any of these things. Even the five aggregates, the statement is something like. Uh, one abides thus, not dependent on form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, and there will be no consciousness of mind dependent on any of these things. Okay. Let's go to the, the question. Let's go to the question part now. The question part is: uh, Is it not uh, uh, add till uh, we haven't reached the stream entry level? Is it not valid enough to have a sense of self? Because anyways, we are the owner of our actions, right? Right. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, um, anyway, so. Um, to whether the Buddha said, said, did the Buddha say nothing when somebody said there's no stay self or there's no self? No, the Buddha said no. You, he said no, you're going to two extremes. That's what he actually did say. He said that's an extreme. To say that there's no self, that's one extreme. To say there's a self, that's one extreme. The Buddha teaches cause and conditions, dependent origination. But so, he didn't say no self explicitly also. 
Well, it, 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 well, however you want to like look, it's a, it's a. I think that we are beyond the scale um, means and scales and the time to explain it here. But the, if you listen, I would say recommend to listen Ajahn Brahmali's uh, dependent origination course, which is like nine weeks. He was teaching dependent origination. I was um, with Venerable Sunyo in um, in. Uh, BSWA website, so you, then you get a better understanding of that. Like I said, you know, he look, he goes like, I think it was six weeks or nine weeks. It was a really long course, and he's got a small booklet about dependent origination, and he clearly says, you know, I'm making this very very short this time, but look, there is no, there is no self because everything depends on the cause and conditions at that every single moment, whether it's your, your eye conscious or your, any of the five faculties, your, your five you know, senses or the sixth sense, your mind. Nothing is there like permanently available at the, any moment. It's just constant changing. So they, how can you say that there's self somewhere in that change, in that every, your mind, let's say you're seeing one point uh, and then you're seeing is you, and is changing all the time. You cannot say that there is the, in that change somewhere there is self there. Agreed. Dependent origination explicitly yeah. confirms this but, point. So you're just going just to say that there is no self. It would be an extreme to say there's no self. Of course, we have to going into your question. We have to we live our day to day life as if there was self. You cannot be beyond that until you have a deep meditation mm -hmm. and after that for a while. But it tends to kick in. The, the sense of self is there. But then you realize that we are made out of those different streams. Your, 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 your body, for example, is made out of different things. And you interpret your, yourself through those senses. It's difficult to see your mind. It doesn't belong to you. Mm. But the Buddha actually said that to actually take... It would be better for you to take your body as you than your mind as you because your mind is changing constantly. It's so quick. If you start looking at your mind, you start seeing how it's constantly, mm. constantly changing. Not just like your body changes slowly, slowly. Mm. But your mind is in constant flux of things happening all the time. And once you start looking at it, you realize it cannot be self. All of that thing what's happening in your own mind cannot be self because it's so quickly and it's changing all the time. So that to, to say that there is self somewhere there, it is an extreme. But to say that, no, this is not self, all those streams combine something which you interpret as yourself. But yeah, sure, it is complex and there's no, we don't say this is how it is. Or this is there is no self. No, it's a really yeah, it's it's a difficult one to say. Thank you. But yeah, it's a good question. Thanks, uh, Chint. No, I don't think so. I think most people think that your mind is yourself. At least I. Uh, the body and mind is interconnected, but we associate ourselves with our minds all the time. We sort of outside of our bodies most of the time. Most of the time, the body is almost like it's there. It's almost like a vehicle. We're using it, and we perhaps we worried about it getting old and sick and those things. But the, 
the most of the time you actually are just you're living in this dream world of your mind and you you t interpret that as you this is who i am but once you start seeing it's it's so chaotic it's it's like there's nothing you can do about it that's the interesting thing about it once you start meditating and being mindful this it's it's almost like this it's it's not just almost if your mind would belong to you you could say if you're angry if you're sad if you're depressed okay that's it i don't want to be depressed anymore i don't want doubt i don't want to be angry and it would just stop but it doesn't there's nothing you can do about it Right. Yeah. No. In that sense. Yeah. Exactly. You said. I just repeat. So we have it in the microphone. That it's. You said that you like the idea that it's. It's almost like a dream, and you start seeing, really, when you have, um, meditating and you're being mindful and you see that the dream or movie, whatever you would call it, it's we're living in this dream world and we interpret that as me, and it as it belongs to you, and it's constantly that it's always there and it's never changing but it's actually the buddha said yeah no that that mind which you're seeing even this it's cannot be self because it's constantly changing it's constantly different your body we actually if you just look at the body it seems to be quite similar day to day whereas mind is not mind is all the time different there's one more question online i think there, you... there is okay you move Got just a couple of minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it says, um, thank you for your inspiring talk, Ajahn. Well, hmm. <laughs> How do you deal with people who lie and manipulate others with their, with their lies? Um, yeah, quite calm. Again, it's, these questions come all the time, not to diminish the question, but there's, it's a... I don't know why we always get these questions about other people manipulating you and other people are like, I'm, I'm in a relationship where uh, the other person is abusing me or, or there's like, I'm, I have to deal with person who uh, doesn't seem to have uh, guilt and they're just making me do things. These questions in many different ways, they come all the time. But how to deal with those kind of people? Well, look, the... Not remind yourself once in a while and you forget, but you just come, you know, listen to the teachings all the time. I would say it's a good starting point, but the, it's not these people's fault either. They are, their behavior is cause and conditions as well. There's nothing you can really, um, the only way, to deal with that is to just to sometimes you need to have you remove yourself from the situation for example you're you're dealing with this this kind of person and it, it's you you realize it's not good for you well try to remove yourself from the situation as much as you can if you cannot try to have kindness towards that person 
if you cannot have kindness towards that person, even a little bit, like you see that you just go, the Buddha had that exa- example of like there's a there's like a, a cow's foot hoof print and there's a little bit of water. Well, you get on your hands and knees and tri- drink, try to drink that clear water from that from that print uh, from that uh, hoof print of just because you're thirsty you need to drink that even that little bit of water there's always a little bit of clear water there just see that even the slightest bit of goodness in that person so you always try to go better and better so if you cannot and if you even if you can't even see the slightest goodness in that person well then think that even this postured will have to endure their their own comic results themselves. And then they will have to reap the the karma they have created themselves. But the best thing is to just like actually just to concentrate even the have they done have they said anything good with this speech? Have they done Okay, they don't even the speech is there's nothing good about this speech. Have they done anything good with their uh, their body? Okay, their bodily behavior is not good. Have they is there anything I can relate that there, there's some goodness in their mind? Just see something there. There's always something good. Just get on your hands and knees and try to find the clear water even from that uh the hoof print of that cow and try to drink that water, that clear water. If you can't even see that, well, then, I don't know. (laughs) Then leave that person behind. Let them be taking care of their own karma. But if you get angry, you're the one who loses. And and it's not not the outside world which makes us, um, uh, it's, it's it's a, the outside world we somehow making it better we cannot change ourselves we can so you realize you cannot even change um the outside world but the only thing you can change is yourself yeah that's it Sadhusan. thank you so much it was so nice to see everybody thank you for the questions and i'll be back in a couple of weeks i think again thank you